Welcome to another episode of the Possum University Podcast. If it's your first time listening, I'm John. I'm a former animal cruelty officer and a former animal shelter supervisor. And I'm Jamie. I am a certified dog trainer and a canine behavioral consultant. On this episode, we're going to discuss leadership in an animal shelter and in animal welfare. Like John said, we're going to be discussing leadership today in animal welfare, shelters, rescues. Today, I will be interviewing John because John was running a part of the shelter that we uh, worked for at the time when we first met, and we want to shed light on this topic and animal welfare in general because we think it's a huge topic that is not talked about a lot. I just want to give a disclaimer. I have never run a shelter myself. I've ran the canine care department, the SPCA, but I have been around long enough to observe and we've been to other shelters and we've seen how they've been ran. So full disclaimer, I have never ran a shelter myself before. I really hope to one day, but uh, this is based on just my observations working in animal welfare for, geez, almost seven years now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you were there before I was there for a longer time. Yeah, my experience that I've gained from that and now life after the shelter, the experience we've gained visiting other shelters. So just trying to get all of that together. And so I don't find myself an expert on leadership, but I do feel like I've grown a lot recently. I've been trying to really drive that home and work on that part of my character. So let's give it our best shot. All right. I think this is a good topic for people to hear. A lot of people don't know the ins and outs of a shelter or a rescue. So I think this is very important to talk about so they can understand when they're adopting a dog, what goes on behind the scenes. So what are the traits of a great leader in animal welfare? I'm going to skip over some of the obvious traits that you're going to get from leaders because that's across all the whole, you know, across everything. So just, yeah, X off the normal leadership roles. What's unique to animal welfare, animal sheltering, is that animal shelters tend to be a revolving door, mm-hmm. especially low-level staff. Mm-hmm. They usually don't stick around for long for various reasons. It's just the nature mm-hmm. of an animal shelter. Yes. So because of this revolving door, the constantly training new staff, you end up with a culture of this is the way we've always done it. And that kind of fosters a shelter to get into, be stuck in a place where they don't advance forward. And that's why a lot of them end up in the red. So no innovation. Right. So to succeed in animal welfare, especially if taking over a shelter that's in the red, you have to be open for change, be willing to learn the ins and outs of the shelter, get your hands dirty. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to do a little laundry. Absolutely. Get involved with every department. There's so many moving parts in a shelter, especially dirty hand parts. Uh Uh-huh. That, uh... Do you know who I'm thinking of right now? Who's that? Kathy Miles. Yes. She she's always getting her hands dirty. She's a higher up at the SPCA, but if they are short-staffed, if someone calls out sick, she is in the puppy room in the thick of it. And I always love that about her. So get your hands dirty and get input from your frontline staff. So mm-hmm. like your, your lower level supervisors, see what's going on. They're the ones in it every single day and knowing their department, be willing to get feedback from them. And adjust the game plan accordingly based on the feedback that you get from them. Mm -hmm. Not just sticking to your own guns. Right. The other big trait with animal welfare is it's more unique to animal sheltering is a dire need for compassion towards your subordinates. You're dealing with low paid staff who are over invested in the animals, which is a good thing. But I mean, you know it. I know it. Also be a negative. Coming in on on your days off, Mm -hmm. not getting paid for overtime. Yep. Not taking lunch breaks because you just feel guilty taking lunch We all did it. And this is, you know, minimum wage staff. So you're, you're low paid, overinvested in your job, 
And it literally becomes a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You don't get to leave this job at work. Yes. You don't get to leave it at the door. It's you impossible it to do so. So because of that, you get an emotional roller coaster for a lot of your subordinates, a lot of your staff. Mm-hmm. And emotions go from, you know, top of the world, just had a a long-term resident adopted, and then right down to the very bottom. In the same exact day, you can be ending your day on a euthanasia, which we did quite often. Yeah. Right before we left for the day, it would be euthanasia, and then kind of just bums you out, even if it's your Friday and and you have the next two days off. It was usually always on Friday. I never understood why we did that. It was the way the everything worked out as far as the disposition meetings and yeah, that's true. Because you had your behavior meeting Wednesday, yeah. DP meeting Thursday. I always work Saturdays anyway, Friday, so I guess so. it it was okay. <laughs> that's just the way things were done at that specific shelter. Yes. So you have staff that's emotionally burned out. You can't expect a do as I say relationship. Mm-hmm. It's you very can't. different than a normal nine to five job. Right. You need to meet them at their level, and you need to show compassion. So if they're coming to you. And they're emotionally charged and, and they're really upset. you got to meet them at that level. You and not just... acting like a normal employee right. at that moment. That a normal nine to five employee would be acting. You have to right. change the way And I'm not saying run a zoo. Yes. <laughs> but you need to, to meet them emotionally at that level. Let them know that you, you're equal. And you're going to help them through and, mm-hmm. and get to the resolution that they want. So that's the biggest issue. And I've seen it before. It's just point fingers, do as I say, and you're not going to get the results you want. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have a lot of, you're going to get a lot of kickback and resistance really fast. So those are the two traits. Okay. I, I would say would be be willing to accept change, mm-hmm. enact change, and get the info on that change from your frontline workers. And then at the same time, have compassion for your frontline workers and have compassion for your subordinates. And not expect everything to go the way you see it happening. Right. Yeah. Moving away from that, what are the toughest challenges as a leader you should be ready to encounter while working in animal care? So luckily, I haven't had to face this myself. I was because I was just never at no point was I like the face of the organization or anything like that. Nothing close to it. So this is more of an issue for a leader that's seen by the public. But a huge issue is bad press and bad social media. Mm -hmm. That can really, really mess you up. Absolutely. For the most part, damage control should be delegated, but a leader should address their subordinates when it's the fan. Your subordinates are the ones that whose family and friends are going to be reaching out to them. Oh, did this really happen? Did this happen? Is it really like that there? Are you really euthanizing all these animals? So you need to have transparent communication with your staff when you get bad press and when you get bad social media. Like Social media spreads like wildfire. Absolutely. Oh God, especially now. But what a lot of people don't understand is the stuff that you see on social media, 95% of it is not true. There's a lot of people who, for some reason, and John can explain this way better than I can, are against what these shelters and rescues are doing. They think that they're harming animals. Obviously, most shelters do euthanize, but there are rules there. You know, it's not just a blue solution fest. It's there are rules, there are meetings, there are papers to be signed, there are so many hoops to jump through before an animal gets euthanized and that decision is made. It, it's usually behavioral or medical. And either if it's behavioral, it's not something they're going to, they're not going to be able to be adopted out. They are not safe. And they don't make that decision lightly. It takes weeks for them to determine that that's the situation. And medical, it comes down to the vets and seeing, you know, is this dog in pain? Are, are we making this dog suffer by sticking around? Or they can they go into, you know, a hospice situation? But if they're in pain, we don't let them suffer because that's just mean. But other people on the outside that don't understand that and have never seen this, they will target rescues and shelters that that do this and act as though we are the enemy right yeah they'll uh oprah request 
euthanasia logs and say, look at all these animals he euthanized. And they, they'll never show people the other side, the live release rate mm-hmm. and how many animals were released and, and adopted out. And this way they kind of just take the information, skew it, and then get all these people upset on Facebook and then things get crazy. You're never going to find a no-kill shelter unless it's a, sh- a no-kill shelter that, one, just kind of pawns off their sick animals onto other shelters. Yes. Or two, and usually a combination of these, is not open admission. And by open admission, it means you're accepting anything from mm-hmm. anywhere or within your jurisdiction. So you can deny someone if they want to bring their animal or they, they find a stray or something like that. Right. So a lot of these shelters that claim to be, and I'm talking nationwide, that claim to be no kill, 0% euthanasia, is because they're just not doing the euthanasia in their building. Either they're turning down animals with behavioral issues, they're only taking the best of the best, they're only taking puppies, mm-hmm. they're controlling their, their, their stock. Yeah, absolutely. And they're having outside vets, other shelters, they're transferring other shelters when euthanasia does need to be done. So it's never on their record. Every shelter, the best of the best shelters, euthanize, and they should. It's a necessary part of this. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want an animal out there that isn't safe for the community. And that's what a lot of people don't understand and can't wrap their head around. You know, I'm, you know, John and I, we basically, our entire life is to fixing dogs, fixing dogs that have been through the thick of it. But there are some times where a dog is broken down and has been through such a horrible situation that it's almost impossible. And I say almost impossible because this shelter situation is very different than a dog that's in a home with a family that is dedicated. There's so many animals in this one shelter and this one dog or this one cat is beyond what they are capable of doing. And for them, it's too far gone. And their resources would be better used towards other animals. And that is something that we need to understand that you can't save them all. You can try like hell, which we do all the time, but there are some dogs that have been so abused and so hurt that we've come to, we've dealt with it so much that John and I understand that sometimes it's better to let them go, let them go to wherever their next step is in life to be free of whatever happened to them here. And that is, it's the hardest thing to learn working in a shelter or a rescue or any any type of situation like this that some dogs need to be let go and you need to be there with them while it happens. Yeah, that's well said. Thank you. I kind of got chills while I was talking about it. I got a little emotional. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I just want to circle back real quick. Yeah. On that topic of bad press, it's going to happen. Have thick skin. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yes. What is a common mistake that leaders make in animal welfare? I would say not acknowledging your staff for their accomplishments. I think that's huge. Yes. This is, obviously, this isn't a job that we do or anyone does for recognition. Or for the money. Or for the, that's, <laughs> you that's for damn sure. Nothing. <laughs> Definitely not for the money. Yeah. But this isn't a job that's that's done for recognition. So when you do get recognition from a supervisor, it like it's that much more valuable. It makes than it so much more worth if it. If you were just working a nine to five desk job, not involved in an animal shelter, and you get like a attaboy, a girl, whatever, they give you like a ten dollar Starbucks gift card, like whatever. Mm-hmm. When it's this and it's it's something as simple as like boots on the ground, your supervisor is looking you in the eyes and saying, You did a good job. You did a you did a great job. This looks great. Look how clean this looks. It wasn't this clean yesterday. Mm-hmm. This dog's going to be so happy to have this, you know, nice clean enclosure. Or this dog's behavior is is rapidly changing spending time with you. Mm-hmm. Well, it's that's huge. Things. Yeah. It's huge. It, or even something as small as like, there's a lot of busy work in shelters. This pantry looks immaculate. 
because usually the pantries get pretty My messed up. Favorite in there. thing to do, like like these bowls, so well organized. Organization like, thank you. is you did key. a great job. This is going to make us so much more efficient. Absolutely. Little things like that are going to go a really long way, especially mm-hmm. when a lot of shelters tend to do this like inauthentic. You know, let's just celebrate this whole department day, and yeah. you guys are great. And here's posters, and it's like it's so. It's so not genuine. Well, it's so broad. Right. So Because like, you know, companies, they do multiple things and so does the shelter. But like being picked out and to be recognized at a shelter is so different than at like a corporation or a business. Yeah. We've all seen it. You walk past like the mural that they'll do for the week. Like if they want to celebrate, like let's say adoptions Mm -hmm. and it's like all this stuff. It just doesn't feel authentic. Nobody goes home and says... They put a whole mural up for adoptions. Like, <laughs> that, you'll never believe what happened this week. Yeah. But like when, when your supervisor actually goes up to you, looks you in the eye, tells you you did a great job and you're making an impact, mm-hmm. you're going to take that home. You're going to be on cloud nine. Yeah. Well, I used to remember like when we were working there and they would put out the email blast at the end of the day of who got adopted. And if like you helped get one of the like hard to adopt dogs or cats out. Like, you got a little shout out at the end and I was like always looking for my name. Like, am I going to be in it? Oh my God. Like, you you look for it because it makes you feel good. We don't, it's not, you don't do it because you want the recognition, Mm -hmm. but we're, we're human beings. Yeah. We thrive on that. That makes us work hard. It doesn't hurt to get a little recognition, especially in a field like this. Mm -hmm. Revolving door. Yeah. Low level staff. If you don't acknowledge them, you don't give them any recognition. They're going to feel replaceable. Yes. And yeah, they... They are. Yeah. They are replaceable. Everybody's But make, but make them want to stay. But it's not your job to remind them that they're replaceable. It's your job to remind them that they're unique. They're doing a fantastic job. You want them to stick around and you want them to go places. Absolutely. That's a huge misstep I see is just inauthentic recognition, if any recognition at all. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I think that was one of the biggest things when we were at the shelter as well that I looked for and, and felt good about. And I tried. I probably could have done it. Like hindsight, I could always do better. Anybody could always do better hindsight, but I always tried to have more one-on-one intimate conversations and let people know, especially if it's something you're doing wrong, I'll have a conversation with Mm -hmm. you. And my goal is not at the end of the conversation for you to be like, oh man, Mm -hmm. like you should come out of that conversation motivated to do better and not want to just go home and hide. Yes. I think with you, again, hindsight, now that we're, you know, five years from then, because you didn't do it all the time, when you did it, it mattered. Did that what? Makes like sense. recognition? Yes. Like you weren't one of those bosses that were like, you're awesome. You're awesome. Everyone's great. Blah, blah, blah. Because then it's it's not genuine. Yes. It becomes inauthentic. So again. when you did it, it's kind of like that saying like, he doesn't talk often. When he does, he makes a count. It's like that. Like you didn't you didn't do it consistently every single day. But when you did it and, and you and like if I or anybody else that we worked with was the one that was, you know, picked out and, and recognized, it felt damn good. Because you didn't do it often. So you knew it struck a chord with you, you know? Yes. That's actually a good point. I don't want what I said to be misconstrued as like, just give out compliments just because. Yeah. Be there. Like half the battle is actually acknowledging them. The other half of the battle is actually catching them doing something right. Yeah. You got to be there. Yes. Like you said, boots on the ground. Yep. So catch them doing something right. Don't just give it out for no reason. You hear people talk about the overuse of like the words love Mm -hmm. and then it starts to mean less and less the more you say it. Or you're amazing. Yeah, that's your favorite. (laughs) John and I have a a comedian that we watch on Netflix and she goes through um, when women overuse the phrase amazing because we say it all the time because nine times out of ten we're probably jealous or 
not really listening. So I think that's really interesting that she brought that up because a lot of times we do that. Guys do the same thing, but they say, that's crazy. <laughs> that's what they say. That's crazy. And that's just, it. Because you really don't care. You don't care. Yeah. So I've noticed that and I like try to stop myself from doing that when, you don't, know. Don't, that's crazy, your staff. Yes, don't. <laughs> or that's amazing with that voice because it's not, it's not good. It's not amazing either. <laughs> it's not. Um, so... You know, in terms of animal welfare, like what challenges are unique to that rather than, you know, what normal jobs are? Like I said before, the Facebook keyboard warriors are a huge thing. It's you're rough. Not, you're not going to find that in many other fields. Everybody has their cloudy day. Because it's like a passionate thing, Every right? job has their cloudy day. But you have people who have seriously misguided passion and they're not involved hands-on at animal shelters. Maybe they'll donate or hardly donate. They'll drop off a toy twice a year. But they think that they're owed an answer. They think they know better than you. They think they care more than you. And it's just entirely misguided. That's pretty unique to animal welfare. Yeah, I don't think I'd really dealt with that anywhere else that I worked prior. Because you have people that would rather you personally die than see a dog die. Yeah. So you're dealing with high emotions. Mm-hmm. Some eccentricness. Sometimes not enough trust. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty unique. But also hiding behind a keyboard is is the main issue. Like these things are never like talked about. These Most of these people, and we all see it on Facebook, especially in all these like dog groups. Like these are people that have never stepped foot in an animal shelter. Or if they have, it was only to adopt. They've never actually put in the work. Yeah. They've never actually had to create this bond with an animal and then have it ripped from you Mm -hmm. through euthanasia. Yeah. They've never experienced that. They don't understand. And then they just jump right on and start bashing people. Well, I think what upsets shelter workers the most is like how you just said, like, these people have never done this before and you have that favorite animal and then it literally slips through your fingers and you blame yourself because of it. And then people have the audacity to yell at you for it. Like mm-hmm. you didn't do anything to help that mm-hmm. animal. And it's like you did everything in your power to keep this animal alive and it just wasn't in the cards. And then you have to deal with people telling you that you're a horrible person. It's like, it's like I always say to people, they're like, I have friends who, you know, aren't really in the dog scene, but they they love it. Like they're animal lovers. They're not animal people. And they're like, oh my God, I don't know how you do this. And I'm like, well, it's kind of a lifestyle that like, chooses you you don't really choose it and then once you're in you can't get out and it's this love-hate relationship where like some days you're like why did I get into this this is horrible this is like it just it destroys you it rips you apart but you keep coming back because the good stuff makes the bad stuff worth it it's like whenever people would say I don't know how you do this and like I think to myself you're lucky Mm -hmm. you're lucky because it's a blessing and a curse at Mm -hmm. the same time absolutely we say it all the time it's, it's hard as hell. Wears you down. Mm-hmm. So that's one of two unique challenges. That would be an external challenge. And then there's also an internal challenge. Mm-hmm. I think you know where I'm going with this. Yes, absolutely. Compassion fatigue. That sucks. That does suck. Let's explain that for uh, the people that don't know what that is. So compassion fatigue is also called secondary traumatic stress. It is a topic that's very dear to me because I suffered from it. Pretty bad. Yeah, you did. We see pain and suffering and not so happy endings day in and day out. It quickly becomes a realization that the work is never done. That's probably the most trying thing is absolutely you finally like you finally get a room start start to empty out and it's like, oh, here's three more. 
Yeah. Oh, and there's two more coming later. Yep. The work, so figure it out. The work is never done and that mm-hmm. eats away at you. Yep. So you just constantly feel like this weight on you and you just want things to get better and the second that they do, it gets worse again. Yes. It's a level of emotional and physical exhaustion. So great that you begin to lose the ability to empathize or feel compassion for others. That includes living creatures. That's compassion fatigue in, in a nutshell. Yeah. It's literally, you are stripped of your ability to feel. You and would not, you, you're not doing the things that you would have done when you started. Yes. And it's directly linked to working with victims of disaster, trauma, illness. So you'll see it with nurses, especially through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. You see it with police officers, firefighters, and it's very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. Absolutely. So back to compassion fatigue as a uh, unique challenge to animal welfare. A quarter of all the dogs and cats in shelters are euthanized every year in the United States. Jeez. I actually found a study published January 17th, 2020, this year, okay. a couple months ago. Okay. They wanted to assess the relationship between a shelter's live release rate, which is how many animals come into the shelter and then are either adopted out or released to the wild if they're wildlife. So they're looking for a relationship between a shelter's live release rate as well as the involvement in euthanasia decision making on mental health. Okay. So they're looking to see if this shelter has this much of a live release rate, how does it affect the worker's mental health? And then on top of that, they also factored in if they're involved in a decision making. So like those okay. DP meetings we talked about. Yeah. So the, the big people who make those hard decisions. Right. Yeah. So what do you think they found? If I'm understanding this right, I think a shelter who has a, a higher live release rate, right. they're going to have obviously less compassion fatigue. Because of less, because of less, death use, and yeah, less... yeah, absolutely. Um, and then obviously the opposite for the ones who have lower, right? They found that in shelters with the higher live release rate, the emotional trauma was greater. Why? I don't really know, and I I don't think that they have an answer, but I can probably speculate that a shelter that performs well and has a good live release rate, you have a bigger bond with these animals. Yeah. And I could see that. you're more involved hands-on as compared to we know of other shelters that are literally a revolving door for animals. So they mm-hmm. come in seven days straight hold euthanized. There's you're no so sense in even it. walking them. Yeah, they're just so used so to the, it. So you know, especially New York, New York City, all the pounds over there. Yeah. They would do hundreds a day of euthanasias. They don't bother making a relationship. Yeah. We had the opportunity to create bonds over weeks mm-hmm. with these animals to the point where they're a great dog for us. Remember when Giraffe got adopted? Yeah. I was so happy and so sad. So I know exactly what you're talking about right now. And I, and I think that's probably hitting the nail on the head. I didn't know who to love. <laughs> you know, I had all yeah. this love for one dog. You know, I, I spent time with other dogs, but she was my girl for what, six months? Mm-hmm. And then she got adapted by this fabulous couple, two dads, and they weren't far and they were just so wonderful. And they made her even fatter than she was already. And I couldn't have picked a better family for her. But it like when I came in the next day and she wasn't there, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I want to read that study. So yeah. We have the whole thing. So the name of the study is The Occupational Health of Animal Shelter Employees by Live Release Rate, Shelter Type, and Euthanasia-Related Decision. That's from the Multidisciplinary Journal of the Interactions of People and Animals, Volume 33, pages 119 to 131. Approximately a quarter of dogs and cats in animal shelters in the United States are euthanized. The stress associated with having to care for animals they subsequently euthanize puts animal shelter workers at a high risk for compassion fatigue, burnout, and even suicide. 
The aim of the present study was to assess the relationship between a shelter's live release rate, defined as the percent of animals that leave the animal shelter with a positive outcome, and the involvement in euthanasia-related decision-making on employees' mental health. An online nationwide survey was administered to 153 municipal and private shelter workers, consisting of the impact of the event, the professional quality of life questionnaire, the moral injury event scale, and questions relating to their work environment. A multivariate regression model found that compassion satisfaction, secondary traumatic stress, moral injury, and burnout were positively correlated with live release rate. This suggests that although job satisfaction is greater in shelters with more positive outcomes, trauma may also be greater. The T-test revealed that employees who euthanize have higher moral injury scores compared to those who do not. A second multivariate regression model found that deciding which animal to euthanize predicted increased secondary traumatic stress. Overall, the data shows that live release rates and decisions surrounding euthanasia play a role in occupational trauma. Furthermore, the data provides support for further exploration of moral injury and animal shelter workers. I find that to be super important. Mm Mm-hmm. Because if you're leading an animal shelter with a very high live release rate, Mm -hmm. you're not having compassion fatigue on your radar. Your guard is down. You're not thinking about your staff because you're thinking, wow, they could could be over in New York City where they euthanize 300 a day. We euthanize three a month. Yeah. It's not on your radar and you're going to get caught with your pants down. So that's a huge challenge is to keep that in your mind. Remember that regardless of your live release rate and actually more important, if you have a high live release rate, you probably have a higher chance of having widespread compassion fatigue through your staff and you need to address it and it should really be addressed twice a year. Well, that does make sense because, you know, being at the SPCA, I think it's a, it's pretty much a well-oiled machine. We got animals out as much as we could and I think we did a damn good job. I mean, the vet techs worked their butts off, especially with like wildlife. Like wildlife comes in all the time. Raccoons squirrels, possums, they work their butts off to keep these animals alive and then they they will, you know, rehab them and re-release them, which a lot of people don't even see that. They just think, you know, shelter cat and dogs, but it's not always that. And I think, you know, in terms of that, the SPCA does have a high, what is it, live release rate? Yep. That's what it's called. And I do think there is a lot of compassion fatigue at the SPCA. There's When I started, it was rampant. And obviously, I don't have a finger to the pulse right now because we're not in that building yeah. anymore. We're not seeing those people. And yeah, so we're talking to the past. For the most part, I don't really know many of the staff that are there. Mm-hmm. You know, we know the, the core people, but- Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, yeah. like we said, those low-level staff, the revolving door staff, unfortunately, we don't know very well. Mm-hmm. But I imagine it's probably the same situation. I, yeah. I think compassion fatigue is here to stay, and we just need to stay ahead of it. And I really want to do a whole episode on compassion fatigue, and I think it'd be really cool if we can get someone from the Compassion Fatigue Project to be uh, awesome. on the podcast to talk about it, because they're much more informed than I am. But I don't think it would hurt to... For one, throughout the hiring process, educate these these future prospects that compassion fatigue exists. I didn't know about it. None I of us did. I wasn't warned. I didn't know until it hit me. Yeah. You know? And at that point, you still didn't know what hit you. It creeps up on you. Yes, it does. So teach your staff about compassion fatigue. More importantly, teach them how to identify it in their coworkers mm-hmm. and then have a safe way for them to not tell on their coworkers, but no, communicate with them. And there know. needs to be some type of system in place where if you identify compassion fatigue, you start remediating it, mm-hmm. fixing it before it becomes a serious issue. Because like the study showed suicide rates and thank God we don't know anybody that yes, committed suicide, thank God. but I'm sure we know people that have yeah. c- considered it. Yes. To get that burden off. It's a lot to carry. You don't. I, I wish I could find the picture, but it's like, what, like an empath, like when they're dealing with people and their problems, like yes. 
I I feel like this constantly. You've, have you seen it? Yeah. Where it's like they're all like just white, like a clean slate. Uh huh. And then like someone will walk up to them with like black hands and like they're crying. Yeah. And they'll say something to the empath and then they'll they'll say something like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll help you. They hug them mm-hmm. and then they're done embracing. Now the empath has the black on their hands and yes. the other person's clean. Like, oh, thank you. And they run off. Yeah. And the next person comes up and by the end of it, the empath is covered in black. Yeah. I think it's a pretty good illustration and there's of like no one there what to help you carry them. around. Absolutely. It's like a huge burden. I mean, I can think of so many people just in the vet tech room alone that like I was just saying, like the kittens that come in that are what, two weeks old? No mom. I think Kelsey, who's who runs the kitten foster program yeah. and does a lot with the wildlife, like she's killing it. She is killing it. She, she said it was like 1,400 kittens through their system Jesus. adopted or, or fostered out. Like that's, that's incredible. She works her butt off. It's insane. I've never seen anybody work that hard. And I remember when we were there, she just took care of these bottle babies for weeks. And she was like finally free for a night. And then right before we left, there was like... I think raccoons or squirrels that came in. And a lot of people don't know this. If you do not bottle feed them like every, what, like one to two it's, hours, it's ridiculous they die. Now, her choice was bite her tongue and take these animals home and bottle feed all over again, or they stay at the shelter and they die. What would you do? You, you literally have no choice. Either you take them home and you're exhausted and you give in to that compassion fatigue, or you let them die and you're a monster. Which is easier for you to do. But she rides the occasion every she time. She does, so and she's a beast. I got a lot of respect for her. I absolutely do. She's doing a wonderful but job. These are the people that like we need to protect and yeah. we need to check in on. We need to do our work to help them out. And because, like I said, compassion fatigue is real. And uh, I would like to see shelters across the board, especially in our area, put, you know, the ones that we can have an impact on. I'd like to see compassion fatigue be talked about more. I do. I feel like... It's just like mental health in general. A lot of people, I mean, it's getting better, but a lot of people don't talk about it because it's like that weakness. Like, don't talk about it. Like, I'm, I'm, and even the people that are in it. I know a lot of people that, you know, have depression or have anxiety and it's like, you know, it's a hush hush thing. They don't want even anybody to talk about it because it's almost like they're embarrassed or they don't want to be deemed as weak. I think this happens for a lot of men. I think women are a little bit more open about their feelings, but a lot of men that go through this, they don't want anybody talking about it. They want to deal with it on their own because if they don't, then they're looked at as weak. And um, I find it's the same thing with the shelter that, you know, you want to be the toughest person there. You want to be the person who, who does the job, you do it well, and you don't need any help doing it. And I think this gets us in a bind and we don't talk about it as much. So I do think it needs to be normalized and it needs to be spoken about more so people feel comfortable talking about their feelings so they can get it out, be understood by everybody around them so they can have a little bit of extra help. Someone can pick up that extra slack. So maybe that someone can have that extra night of sleep where they're not bottle feeding or Mm -hmm. they're not coming in on their day off to work behaviorally with a dog that they're scared is going to be euthanized soon. It's like those little things that, like John said in the very beginning of this topic, it's not a job that you leave work at work. You take it home and sometimes it haunts you a little bit and it makes you want to go back and fix things because you don't think there's any other choice. But then that dog finally gets adopted and there's one more dog that comes right back after mm-hmm. it. That's the exact same Close way. Slot. Revolving door. Absolutely. Not just for employees, but for the animals as well. Yeah. So that's the, the big internal thing that no one from the public sees, no one from the public understands that I highly recommend leaders. This is any level of leadership in a shelter. Keep it on your radar and watch, look, you know, look out for your people. What are good ways to balance the stress of animal welfare in order to 
avoid compassion fatigue like this? Like what can people do? Like even leaders, maybe not just people in general or maybe both. What's a, what's a good way for leaders and what's a good way for a person who's already in compassion fatigue? Water runs downstream. So I would definitely start with the leaders. And I think it's super important that the leaders familiarize themselves with it's two sets of the 10 laws. Okay. So And luckily I printed them out because I was anticipating good, this question. Because I don't know any of them. So you have the 10 laws governing healthy caregiving, which this is something that should be every worker should be aware of and maybe even hung up in the break room as a constant reminder. But the 10 laws governing healthy caregiving, one, sustain your compassion, two, practice authentic, sustainable self-care daily, three, build a support system, four, create a work-life balance, really important. So important. Oh my God. Five, apply empathic discernment. Number six, recognize the humor. Seven, learn to let go. Eight, acknowledge your successes. Nine, remain optimistic. Ten, elevate levels of compassion satisfaction. So those are the ten laws governing healthy caregiving. Those are like rules for your staff to live by. And then ten laws governing a healthy workplace. This is what you can do as a leader. Mm -hmm. One, leader provides debriefing for staff following any traumatic event. Two, leader provides continuing education for staff. Three, leader provides benefit to aid staff in practicing authentic, sustainable self-care. Four, leader provides management and staff with tools to accomplish their tasks. Five, leader directs management to monitor workloads. Six, leader provides positive team building opportunities to promote strong relationships among colleagues. Seven, leader encourages open door policies to promote good communication among staff. Eight, leader translates the organization's mission statement into action. Nine, leader allows management to empower staff. And ten, leader promotes transparency in all communications and dialogues. Like These that. resources and more like it are available at CompassionFatigue.org. But those are the uh, the 10 laws governing a healthy workplace. And I think that that almost sums up everything we've gone over. I like number six in the 10 laws governing healthy caregiving. Um, recognize the humor. I have to pat myself on the back for this because I think this is just my personality in general. Don't hurt your hand. All right. You calm down. Um, when I was at the shelter, I think my main goal, because thankfully I do not suffer from mental illness. Uh, I do have people in my family who do, but I find that, um, I've been through a lot in my life and I am not susceptible to be brought down. I appreciate that so much that, um, it's not something that I go down a rabbit hole or anything like that. I, um, have pretty good skills to keep myself above water. I don't worry about things until they are upon me, which I know a lot of people don't do. But I think at the shelter, I tended to make things more fun. And I think I encouraged John to plan more fun things and make more fun activities while we were working. Because like we've been saying this entire time, like it's a situation where there can be a lot of gloom and doom if, you know, there's a a bad run of of dogs and and even cats and it's easy to get down. But if you fulfill your day um, with little things that kind of make you happy, like I would always, like if I had extra time, like John always scheduled it really great. Like we all cleaned in the morning from nine to 12. And then after that, once the entire building was clean, we had, you know, certain tasks to do during the day, whether it was like, go work with blah, blah, blah on blah, 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 behaviorally, go bathe, blah, 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 or take blah, 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 for a pair walk with one of our friendlier dogs. Um, So we're doing proactive things to kind of help these dogs. And like, I think I would, I really love, like I always tell John, like I thought it was very important that every dog on the adoption floor had a nice, beautiful bandana. 
that went with their personality. And I always made sure that they had collars that matched their personality and they always had harnesses on their digs. Even if it meant you went to Etsy and bought the collar yourself for $40? Yes. And I did that three times only. Relax. (laughs) Um, But it matters. Like giraffe. I got her a giraffe martingale. It was beautiful. And butterfly. I got her one with butterflies on it. You know, like those things matter. And like people see that when they walk on the floor, they see, oh, this dog's name is Butterfly. That's a weird name. Oh, it's got a butterfly costume. I see a theme. Yes. It's awesome. But that's also fun for the staff. And it it kind of mellows out the bad days. And I think the more people who try to bring the good instead of being a storm of bad, you could help your coworkers out. You know, if if you're not, again, if you're not that bubbly, and you, I mean, I I'm annoyingly excited about certain things. Yeah, nice. I, <laughs> I was very surprised that John and I actually worked out because we <laughs> were very different personality wise. Um, I spent the better part of three months just trying to make the kid laugh. He was too busy trying to be a leader. She's still working on it now. Yeah. Whatever. So I think, you know, if you do have that personality where you're a little bit more like me, don't let the gloom and doom bring you down. Try and bring them up. Rise to the occasion. Absolutely. And just be be annoying. Who cares? If you can help somebody get, if you can help one of your coworkers get out of a rut that day, be annoying. Who cares? I didn't care. It might even be the one you think doesn't like you. Yep. So I don't claim to be or have been the greatest leader I have made many mistakes. I have hurt many feelings, things I regret, but I'm always willing to, especially recently, I've been willing to open up my mind to more ideas and how to become a better leader and a better person Mm -hmm. and a better coworker. And uh, I challenge anybody listening to do the same. Yeah. I think that's what makes a good leader though. Knowing that you can change in doing it. Yes. I think so too. Not to be stuck in your ways. And to acknowledge your downfalls and try and grow from them. Absolutely. And that's what I'm doing. And acknowledging them, not putting them in the past and, oh, that never happened. I wasn't that bad. Like, we all make mistakes and owning up to them and saying them out loud and and knowing that, you know, you'll never do it again. That's being a leader. Leaders aren't perfect. Continue to strive to be perfect. Yes. You'll never get there, but. That's okay. Running Animal Shelter is one of the most challenging jobs out there. Be willing to improve each day, keep the animals the priority, respect your subordinates, enact positive change, and maintain a level of fiscal responsibility, and I promise they will remember your name. I like that. I That's like all that a I lot. got for you. <laughs> I hope that uh, I am on some level qualified to speak on this. I think you I are. Ho- I hope you feel that way. As and, one of your old employees. <laughs> and yeah, Miranda's probably listening to this rolling your eyes. <laughs> She only speaks highly of me when I'm in when I'm in the room. Um, I just hope that somebody can take something away from this and improve their own shelter, even if they're lowest on the totem pole. Work your way up and enact change. And even if it's someone who runs foster based stuff, it doesn't need to be a fully operational no, shelter. No, you can have five people that help you out. These all apply. Everyone will appreciate it. But if you've got some stagnant water in your shelter, get in there, shake it up, make some positive change because the only ones that are going to benefit the most are the animals. Absolutely. I think that's all we got. I hope you guys liked the change of topic today. I think John and I thought it would be a really nice change for everybody to kind of steer away from behavioral with dogs and give you guys a little bit of a glimpse of how John and I kind of got to where we are now anyway, why we're here and what we dealt with before starting Possum University. Impossible Walks. Yeah. yeah. Where we uh, are both leaders and we have another leader, Miranda. Yes. Um, Wouldn't be able to do. manager. Wouldn't be able to do Possum University, which is, you know, the behavioral training and dog training, if we didn't have Miranda to run Possum Walks, which is our 
uh, dog walking and overnight pet sitting business. She manages, we're at five staff right now with, after the pandemic, unfortunately. Um, but Nobody she died. Yeah, no. <laughs> just just not operating on, on all cylinders yeah. right now. Waiting for people to go back to work. And she does. Six. Six staff. Six, you're right. We are waiting for it to go back to normal. But we would not be able to do this without Miranda. She literally runs it for us. You know, I could not imagine running Possum Locks, Possum University, and raising a four-month-old at the same time. And she takes that stress way off of us. She is, I call her my work wife. (laughs) I don't know what I would do without her. She literally finishes my sentences and does everything that I would do. And what I appreciate most from her is that when she is in a bind, she comes to us. You know what? She's a fantastic leader. She is. That's all we got this week. We've got a small bite coming on Friday, 7 a.m. That's our new release schedule. So it'll be Wednesday, 7 a.m. And Friday, 7 a.m. for small bites. This Mm -hmm. week's small bite is going to be about... I'm not telling you. You got to tune in. You kidding me? 7 (laughs) a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Friday. Tune in to the small bite. New segment. Hope you like it. If not, just click play and then close it out so we get the hit. (laughs) Until next week. Class dismissed.